This is Storage Unpacked. Subscribe at storageunpacked.com. This is Chris Evans with the Storage Unpacked podcast. I'm here today with Alex McMullen from Pure Storage, international CTO at Pure Storage, no less, Alex. Hey, Chris. Good afternoon. Good to see you. Looking forward to the chat today. So we're here today because you made a big announcement. Yes, indeed. I'm doing a bit of a world tour on this one. We are changing what we think of as the, the face of analytics, data processing, but also hopefully the wider world. And we'll get into some of the details as to why we think that's important. But this is really about looking at the way the world's traveling in terms of sustainability, energy density, but also accelerating the rate of research. And we can talk about why that's important as well. Yeah, and that includes a new product, of course. That's, you know, this is part of the announcement too. Yes, today's announcement is the formal launch of the Flashblade E, which is our next and very aggressive step into the world of capacity optimized storage. We've always had the thesis that if every customer was given the chance to buy an all-flash product or a disk-based product, naturally over time they're going to gravitate towards something that's based on solid state for energy consumption basis, but also for random read performance and for sustainability and e-waste benefits that we will talk about in a little bit more detail. Flashblade E today is the first step in a cadence for us to change the way that customers think about storing data, but also to help process larger and larger data sets that we've been talking about. You know, the figures are pretty compelling whether you get them from IDC or from Gartner or from your own data centers. The rate of data growth, particularly for unstructured data, is accelerating. It used to be we could always rely on a kind of 15, 20% block data cadence, but we're seeing, particularly for S3-based workloads, data protection for ransomware, for containerized applications, that's now growing at 50% plus on a year-on-year -year basis. And that's why we think we have to think differently about the products and how we deal with it. What we're thinking about here really is using pure consistent DNA of evolution, innovation, sharing on the energy and the capability side of things, but also moving forward, Flashblade will fork into different product lines. So we already have Flashblade S for high performance and performance sensitive workloads. Flashblade E will double, triple, quadruple the data density over time, giving you still very high performance from all Flashblade system. But more importantly, by using larger and larger QLC drives over time and also optimizing for compute versus storage shelves or compute and storage chassis even, we're gonna be able to lower the cost of goods. The strap line that we're talking about this week is we'll be able to ship to customers a Flashblade system, a Flashblade e-system, which will be at a price point of 20 cents per gig as a three-year cost. And that includes support, and that's before data reduction. So that really changes what we think of as the economics of data storage. Excellent. That really sort of sets us up for the discussion, and we're going to talk about the technology in a, in a few moments. But initially, I think it would be good just to go back and talk about why we feel we need a product like Flashblade E, why we've reached this point. You've highlighted some of that already by talking about unstructured data growth. But obviously, it's it's quite interesting because the, the growth isn't just what we think it used to be. We're seeing a lot of machine-generated data. We're keeping data for a long time. But also, we want to bring that data online and use it when we want to use it. So, for instance, archiving it to tape and things like that, like that isn't going to deliver the same level of accessibility, practical usage as it would be to have it 
online in a random access type platform. And similarly, I think there's a question there around hard drives as well. So I'm going to add one more thing in there, and then I'm going to let you go, let, let you <laughs> dive into this. Okay. Um, and then there's the question of sustainability. You know, all of these things are coming together into the data center to cause many, many challenges, I think, for customers in order to work out how they manage the long-term storage of, I guess, that next phase of uh, of data. So, you know, there is a good reason why you've got a, a need for a product like this. Yes. Okay, so let me address all of those then. Perhaps not in the same order. From a sustainability perspective, it's about two different aspects. So there's obviously the e-waste part. If you compare hard drives and our solid state drives, the two things that stand out, obviously, when the hard drive reaches end of life, it goes in landfill. But as part of that story, many of our customers have had that same approach to hard drives in solid state where they would not even return hard drives, they would shred them. So there's a double trip to landfill. Repairability on the hard drive side, if it's something mechanical, then it's pretty much guaranteed not to be repaired. Whereas with a solid state drive, you can replace a chip or a controller. There's no concern on air tightness or particle integrity across each of the platters. So repairability, the right to repair is very much a part of that. When you want to keep that level of investment in keeping stuff out of e-waste and landfills, that's a big part of the story for customers, particularly as they're now being asked to sign up to 2030 or 2040, very aggressive targets, not just for carbon footprints, but also on e-waste, which is a big part of our industry problem in general. So if you compare hard drives and solid state, obviously there has been a consistent level of innovation on in hard drives and they've done hammer and shingling and now multi-actuators, but they're still hovering around that 20 to 30 terabyte range. We're already shipping 48 terabyte QLC drives and have done for a couple of years. And as part of the announcement this week, we are indicating a future direction of travel, which will take us to 300 terabyte drives over the next couple of years. And that really changes a whole set of dimensions on what the price points will be, what workloads are a value add in that kind of platform. But also, if you think about the, the next consequence of that is, okay, what about data protection and reliability for that kind of data footprint? If you talk about a RAID group that's RAID 6, then you know if you're getting to a 14 plus 2 conversation with 300 terabyte drives, you're looking at longer rebuild times. So looking at different ways of how to deal with the loss of a drive, even though it's temporarily or for replacement, those are things you have to engineer in on day one. So a different set of challenges that Pure is happy to take on, and part of this is coming now with Flashblade E. So why don't I not cover off on that list of the long question, Chris? Um, yeah, so the power and cooling data center challenges. So mm. I highlighted something um, which I think is quite interesting. You Obviously, you've been traveling, so you, you may not have seen it, but believe it or not, Panorama has finally worked out that there's a problem with data centers and power usage and, and <laughs> the fact that it's taking all of our resources. And they did a program on it two weeks ago, very, very lightweight, but actually highlighting something very interesting that say for instance in in ireland the growth of data centers is going to really cut into the electricity supply and then obviously in western west of london there are challenges building new houses because the the demand for power is so high it's really taking away from the ability to put uh, new housing stock in place so everybody's looking at data centers now as being you know the bad guys and we've always tried to optimize data centers that's always been part of our our job to to look at the technology we put in but it seems to be coming to the fore a bit more and getting a bit more of a focus. Yeah, I'll look forward to seeing the panorama thing when I come back. 
I know that our international VP, James Petter, had done an article for the BBC on this a little while back, so maybe we'll take the credit for having Panorama look into it. Who knows? I'd love to say that was the case. But the data center energy density thing is a big part of the overall story. You know, figures from the IEA would tell you that the energy consumption in data centers globally is about 1% of the worldwide energy budget right now, and another 1% for telecoms and data transmission on top of that. And if you look at the hyperscalers as a data point, so Amazon draws about 30 terawatt hours on an annual basis. It's the biggest of the three. If you think about that, that's probably pretty much the output of three nuclear power stations, not, not reactors, three full power stations. You can give them a kind of sort of gigawatt hours there, kind of one gigawatt generation, so nine terawatt hours. Yeah, three, three does the math on that. So when you think about that kind of scale, it then rolls into everything else. And EVs are a big part of the story now, but we don't have enough electricity grid density in any of our urbanized areas to deal with EVs and data centers and population growth. We're now at 8 billion plus as a, a worldwide footprint. So all those things are pushing harder on electricity grid and storage is a big part of that problem. And we want to solve that one. We're already operating in that kind of two watts a terabyte is good from a pure customer perspective. You can see that live on the, the management GUI and things like that. We want to get down into the milliwatt per terabyte travel journey over the next couple of years. And Flashblade is the, really the first kind of decloak of how we're going to do that. Interestingly, I think that in itself is a big challenge, all of those things that we've talked about. But people would say, you know, trying to get into the data center and replace everything with Flash, the, TC, the TCO around that, does it really work? And, you know, you're talking about orders of magnitude of uh, a lot a lot higher capacity with this platform than maybe you've done in other uh, solutions. So do we really think that the TCO can be made to work in this instance? Um, I'm guessing you think you do, otherwise you wouldn't be launching the product. But, you know, that's going to be a real focus for people is, can I really justify this in my business? Yeah, that's a good question, Chris. And we're very conscious that we're targeting a part of the market where it's no longer about performance and the TCO very much comes down to the capital acquisition cost. So we've been pretty upfront in terms of the launch announcement. We said three-year cost is 20 cents, and that includes the service and the support side of things, and that's before data reduction. So that is the number that you can compare with on a like-for-like -like basis with existing disk-based platforms. And of course, overlaying that, you have the soft benefits in terms of data center footprints, and if you're being charged for power, which is a bigger part of that. Now, I think the UK is one of the most expensive in Europe in terms of electricity bills. So that's a bigger part of the focus for you there. In parts of Asia, it's the same thing here. There's a balance of renewable power versus uh, traditionally generated power. So there's lots of discussions on brownouts and rolling brownouts and managing power budgets. If you can actually do that in a smaller general envelope within a data center, that's incredibly compelling. But also as a customer, from that perspective, you simply draw less, which means you have to cool less. So it's a double benefit, as you know, from a PUE perspective. Yeah, I was uh, I was really sort of shocked when I got my renewal quote for my lab environment, which sits in a data center in a colo, mm -hmm. and the power cost basically doubled my costs. Um, and that was just, you know, the conservative estimate. And I think now when you look at um, when you're sourcing equipment, you do take into consideration the cost of the power as part of the cost of the development of the platform. And it's amazing how 20 years ago you'd have, you wouldn't have given it a thought too much, possibly because it was somebody else's budget, but, but also because 
the cost wasn't as high as it is now. So it's definitely on on the agenda when we're looking at this sort of thing. But I think there's a bit more to this as well. I, I, um, I had a couple of other thoughts here, which I made my own total cost of things up while I was uh, sitting thinking about it. And there's, there's, a, there's a total cost of value here, I think, as the idea that you know you can justify putting more and more data onto a faster platform on the basis that you've now got the ability to go off and use this data for other other projects. So, for instance, if you're in, say, a medical um, arena, you might want to move it onto Flash and then go off and justify the ability to go and analyze this data as part of other projects. So I think there's a, a total cost of value piece here as well. And there's also a flexibility piece around having it on a single set of hardware that has the same operating system, the same you know, interfaces, the same operability, just makes it easier for you to um, to use that data. Yeah, it does. And it's a consistent theme we've heard in terms of, in particular with the S3 protocol, which has become now the de facto for apps and analytic kind of workloads. We're very much moving back into that single S3 analytic space where, as you say, you can have all the data in one place and feed different application use cases from that, different buckets with different indexes perhaps. But there certainly is that capability we hear a lot from universities, hospitals, mixing packed imaging with a kind of patient record augmentation, those capabilities too, but also folks doing genomic and bioengineering research. It's that same message. Some of that workload does well with machine learning approaches and a flash-based system will give you the random capabilities that machine learning quite often drives rather than traditional sequential that you will see in this platform. So it supports that kind of ML, I'm trying not to say AI really hard here, it supports that ML kind of transition that we're seeing in a whole range of applications and GPU augmentations. And you know, we've had a ringside seat at this, having got an exabyte deployment at Meta, that's given us a great view in terms of what that platform needs to do in a massive thousands of GPU scale workload. So we have optimized Flashblade E in that particular way. We'll get into the details of how we do that in a minute, of course, but we do see the coalescence of workloads in one place because it's easier to protect that way. And with things like, you know, we did safe mode snapshots to try and help people protect that data in the event of a kind of a supply chain or a ransomware type of attack. That's very much a prevalent part of the world that we live in. So again, solving for some of those challenges different types of workloads, helping data scientists look at bigger data sets without having to wait three weeks for the job to finish. Those are all things that will help in that kind of general research space. So very much excited to see how customers look at this one, Chris. Absolutely. So let's do exactly what you just said there, and let's dive into the detail of what Flashblade E actually is. Um, where should we start? Uh, talk about how it uh, looks compared to the, uh, the existing platforms. <laughs> Yes. So let's do that. In order to do that, we need a little bit of a history lesson. So as a student of history, I always feel obliged to do that. If we step back to our FlashRay X capabilities in 2016-17, when we launched our all NVMe capabilities, we had 20 drives that were in the chassis all NVMe based. And in order to expand out of that chassis as the arrays got bigger, we launched a effectively an NVMe shelf. And that plugged into the back of a flash array over 1500 gig ethernet and it offered up NVMe drives to the base array. The nice thing about that was that the expansion NVMe shelf was actually a flash array physical chassis with more drives in it, of course, but a stripped down and optimized compute set of blades to go in there. So by doing it that way, you get a whole bunch of benefits in terms of supportability, but it also helps to bring it to market 
from a whole range of different reasons. So if you think about taking that concept, turning your existing product, taking some of the compute capability out, putting it in as a shelf, that went so well with Flash Array that this is how we base the engineering transition on Flash, Flash Blade E. In terms of how we've done it, it's exactly the same thing. So the existing Flash Array S chassis is the base of a Flash Blade E. What that gives us is by doing that same thing in that same approach, we can use that same base chassis, optimize the compute, memory, et cetera, et cetera, but still keep all of the NVMe drives in there and then offer those drives out as NQNs to the base chassis itself. So by doing exactly that same thing, it's accelerated our time to market. It's given us a very stable base platform to operate with. And obviously then it gives another 40 drive expansions to the base compute. Uh, a little bit of background detail here. When you run FlashBlade, each piece of the namespace is what we call an authority and that owns a bit of the NFS share, or a bit of the SMB share or the S3 bucket. It has a slice of that. And associated with that is an IP address, some other ACLs, and then obviously you have some compute and some NVRAM slice. And that's what constitutes an authority that can move around between blades. What we've done is essentially on the expansion shelf, if I'll call it that for now, the expansion chassis, it doesn't run any authorities. It just has the drives. So what that means is we can optimize what the packaging is in terms of compute and memory for that piece of the platform but still use the same bare metal and the same carriers for the blades and the drives, et cetera. By doing that, that allows us to drop the cost right down. It connects into the cluster in the same way. So it has the same ethernet links running at hundred gig. And then what that allows us to do is add more and more expansion chassis to the original compute chassis. And that's fairly flexible. So we don't have a fixed prescribed limit on that. We'd expect it's gonna end up as a kind of a one to three, one to four, one to five, depending on the workload. But we can also add more compute-based chassis in over time as the cluster changes or as it grows more and more once it's gone beyond the management of one set of compute blades. So what you get is an elasticity both out and up on that basis and solving for both dimensions. I think this is when one of the design challenges of a scale-out architecture that's based on nodes is that if the nodes are all of a similar size, inevitably either capacity one way or another either compute capacity or storage capacity is slightly compromised because if every node is the same size you can't guarantee that it will scale evenly in both directions so i know that when when you brought out flash blade s the design there allowed you to have a degree of flexibility because then you could put in a certain amount of storage for each blade slightly differently to the previous the, the original generation of flash blade this just seems to go that next step further and take the architecture to a, a level where it's even more flexible than it was previously, if I'm understanding the way you've done it. I mean, at a very simplistic level. Yes, I think you have it exactly that. It's been the bane of HCI-based platforms for a few years in terms of having too much compute or too much storage or not enough of either. We solve for that in what I would class as a very elegant way in terms of allowing the platform to flex in both those directions and exactly as you've described, Chris. So what that gives us is that capability to, with the, the tooling we have in Pure One, be able to tell customers when they've added enough expansion chassis next time around, it needs to be a compute chassis as well or a control chassis. So it gives that dimension which can be tailored to workloads. And when you're operating at that kind of scale, today it will be two raw petabytes per chassis but you know, without foreshadowing too much, that's with a 48 terabyte QLC drive. And we could talk about this one as well in terms of NAND roadmaps. You know, we're announcing that 
our intent is to ship a range of drives in between taking us to 300 terabyte QLC over the next couple of years, which will open up whatever workloads are not already in that 20 cent per gig kind of workload. We'll have a story there for them very quickly afterwards. As an architectural design, just as a side, I guess a little side shoot of our discussion here, one of the things I think is really interesting is that is, is this has gone on for many, many years is, you know, should you should you design and build your own flash drives or should you take commodity ones from vendors? And this argument's gone back and forth many, many times as to which way is the right way to do it. And I know that from, you know, from your design uh, perspectives originally and talking to cars and some of the early discussions um, you used commodity media initially to get the systems going and then very quickly you moved into building your own I think a lot of people see that as a negative or saw that as a negative initially but I think now the logic of what that really means when you come to things like the blast radius of being able to build 300 terabyte drives that and are going to be economically viable from you know from the repairability and all those other aspects suddenly you realize that actually the desire to build your own media is actually a very sort of clever move yes yes as you say we we made that decision it was actually 2014 we made the call we did it for a couple of reasons mostly it was to own the stack end to end in terms of the rate of innovation and the curve and the shape of that innovation as well what we have seen and that's been validated over the last few years in terms of annual failure rates the failure rate on the drives that we own and we made ourselves is so much lower than the commodity media that we used to ship on that basis from you know SaaS-based platforms. And it also gave us the option and the capability to instrument the drive in a lot more detail. And that allows us to optimize for where it helps us to tune our software over time. But also, as you've seen today, it allows us to make bigger and better drives in different directions. So we now have that roadmap laid out pretty clearly and it allows us to solve for the some of the engineering challenges that we've talked about in terms of rebuild times or raid group sizes, if that's even a thing in some of the data protection strategies we're looking at. What it really gives us is the platform to keep innovating, keep building on. From a personal perspective, I'm surprised that some of our competitors haven't gone that route. We've seen actually a, mm. a step away from that. Most other vendors seem to be talking about being a software company or software defined hardware is the basis of all the capabilities that we have. We made our own hardware to keep up with the software that we ship, and that's kind of a behind the scenes detail I realize. The view from us is you can do the best of both worlds if you invest cycles in the right way, but also keeping commonality because you know the same drive works in FlashArray and FlashBlade. We exported technology from one platform to the other. We've done that with, so FlashBlade was our first PCIe based storage, and we learned a lot from that in getting to making our own NVMe drives from some of those lessons learned. They did the GUI, they did the networking, they all came to flash array afterwards. So commonality of engineering standards and underlying capabilities is a big part of the journey. And if you can benefit several platforms from that same drive technology, then why wouldn't we do that? It's a fun fact that the drive itself is actually an industry standard form factor. It plugs in as an NVMe device. You just need our driver in order to use it. That's the value proposition. Otherwise, it just looks like a big wafer. But you know, it's it's important to be able to iterate that design innovation. Otherwise, you don't get the full benefits that you can pass to customers. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just talk in a bit more detail. Then, so we're going to end up in a situation where we have two types of uh, chassis. We're going to have. Uh, our compute chassis or compute and storage chassis. We're going to have our uh, storage chassis. That means we're going to be 
putting a bit more load onto the compute. So are we expecting to see the same degree of performance out of the system? How's it going to change in terms of compared to, you know, the other family of, of products like the S solutions? And obviously, we, even with an S, there's a couple of different model types already. So is this just extending the continuum? So how are you going to fit that in? Okay, so again, a good question. The way in which FlashBlade is constructed, it's based on the FlashBlade S 200 blade. So it uses that as the same fundamental platform. It's Ice Lake based. And the S500 is again Ice Lake based, but with more CPU cores, more memory as you'd expect. FlashBlade E, the what we call the control chassis, I guess I should stick to the proper names now. The FlashBlade E control chassis is essentially equal and identical to a FlashBlade S200 base. And then when we've essentially iterated that out, what we call the expansion chassis has the same physical blade carriers for the drives, but it's essentially optimized to not run any compute workloads, as we said. What that gives us is the capability for a capacity optimized solution, which is still way better than an equivalent disk-based platform, but clearly won't reach the same bandwidth or the max bucket retrieval rates that we would expect with either S200 or with S500, certainly. So it's looking at that three slices of a pie kind of clock diagram. We see FlashBlade E solving for anything that was on hard drives, whether that's genomics, whether that's backup recovery, 30-day operational restore, or just video surveillance data, is going to give you that very good and high sustained read capabilities and write capabilities to a lesser degree, but certainly won't reach anything like the same performance as S200 or certainly S500 for sure. So same DNA, but you'll expect to run probably well, based on the number of control chassis, it's going to be at least a third of the performance of the comparative platforms. Okay. Uh, now, obviously, as a company, you're not keen on the on the term tiering, certainly not tiering within a box. Um, <laughs> and that, that, you know, that I've seen that, uh, that that comment and that joke made many a time. But in reality, there is a continuum of requirements from customers. You know, so some customers need, for example, block-based storage, and they need it super low latency, super high performance. But at the same time, in order to really, to be fair, you know, looking at, at the cost of deploying this sort of technology, in order to really go off and take that hard drive workload, you're not going to do it with the fastest performing storage. It's just not financially viable. So in one direction, you sort of need this sort of technology. But at the same time, like we said already, you know, it de it delivers other things as well. So it's not just about rip and replace so you can justify selling more technology. You know, really, it's the value add you're adding. And I think I think I've seen a diagram where you've sort of shown the 500 and the 200 on like a, the axes of sort of capacity and performance. So adding the E to that, I think, obviously, is, is quite useful to see. And if we can get a copy of that, we'll we'll stick that in the show notes so people can see exactly sure. what that means, because I think I think that will help people understand it. So we talked about the, the architecture, we've talked about the fact that Pure One can help you actually do this um, configuration and think how as things grow, you can manage that. What about things like um, Evergreen? How does it impact in terms of people's licensing? Because you mentioned three-year license, 20, 20 cents a gig. You know, I take it it just slots into the Evergreen model like everything else. So the the full range of ever, Evergreen programs, we certainly were starting with Evergreen 1 as a concept here because the interesting point about this is obviously with a 2U control chassis, or a 2 petabyte control chassis and a 2 petabyte expansion chassis, the base platform is four raw petabytes. We don't expect every customer on day one has a four petabyte requirement. 
So we will be offering it through the Evergreen One programs as well. And obviously, we expect the platform to last at least six years from that perspective anyway. The Evergreen's always been a big part of our story. We want to keep doing that. It's part of the reason we're so supportive on the ESG side of things in customer conversations. So I think that's a long way of saying yes on that perspective, Chris. But the consumption by utility is an important part of the discussion here too, because it is certainly going to be, there will be some sticker shock up front, we expect, on that basis, starting with that sort of four and then adding another two beyond that. The the incremental lumps are quite chunky, so we expect there will be a balance of customers in the SME part of the market will consume it on a dollar per gig per month basis. And there will be some, of course, who will just go with the traditional evergreen on the buying it capex depreciate over as many years as they feel comfortable with. Yes. So one uh, question, Alex, I think I would like to ask, and that's the mobility question. So when you when you brought out different platforms in the Flash Array family, uh, obviously there was an ability to move capacity around or you know applications between platforms. And as soon as you have different platforms with different capacities and performance profiles, you know you need that sort of requirement. Now you've brought out an even bigger range of FlashBlade solutions. The same question sort of you know comes to mind is if customers have workloads that suddenly become active and they want to get a bit higher performance out of it, or they they need to put it back down to a lower level because it's become a bit inactive. How's that going to work in this model? Okay, so the the answer to that one's actually good, simple, clear, maybe surprising for some dimensions as well. But broadly, you can consider FlashBlade E runs exactly the same code as both derivatives of FlashBlade S. So the answer to that is, if you want to move some buckets around, you do that with object replication. If you want to move a file share between systems from an E to an S or vice versa, it's just replication like you would with any other multi-FlashBlade deployment. The only thing that's changing here really is the ability of the platform to sustain the same rates of either buckets or IOPS or bandwidth as you would with the existing FlashBlade S's. But it's the same software interoperability. We're a flash vendor, we don't like tiers. If customers want to move data around between systems of different capabilities, we've already, you know, we support this already with Fusion on the block side of things or with existing flash arrays. But certainly with FlashBlade S and E, there is no walled garden. You can simply use our async or near sync replication technologies, depending on which file or object protocol, and just move the buckets around or the shares around. That's the direction of travel for us. I've not heard a requirement from customers to do it synchronously yet, but never say never in that space. Yeah, I'd be surprised if that was specifically a requirement. I guess it's it's more like a shuffling the tiles on a on a little game is my thought. You know that you know that you you want to optimize the cost of different tiers, not tiers, the, the cost of different systems, <laughs> and especially if you're going to buy something that's four petabytes in size, you might want to uh, archive stuff. You know, you're not going to touch for a certain length of time. So yeah, I mean that's the reason. Okay, right. I tell you what we'll do then, as we're sort of wrapping up here, let's let's go back and and think about where we started in this conversation. You know, we started looking at data growth. We started looking at the sustainability questions, and certainly, you know, the the, the challenges of the of using hard drive systems. So if we now look back at what we now know about FlashBlade E, how can we sort of frame that initial part of our discussion to to see how that now fits into what customers are going to want to do in the future. Okay, so from a high level then, the Paris Agreement set out binding targets for every country to hit. That has cascaded down through governments to large corporations, to small corporations. We're all being asked to do the right thing in terms of CO2 footprint, energy consumption, 
part of that is a driver in each data center and each customer to look at the data they have, the workloads they have, and make a business value decision on whether they keep it or not. Our view from those customer discussions on our side, and it even aligned with our own ESG commitments and our reports, in order to help customers get to, whether it's a 60% reduction or 80% reduction, as we've shown some, we needed to have a different way of solving that problem. We have the DNA within Pure as a company to devolve our system into different subcomponents, use it differently, build it differently as we did with Flash Array. We've done exactly the same thing, that same brilliant engineering with FlashBlade, created a new product line, which is able to tier the compute requirements against the storage requirements and expand in different directions. We'll use much larger drives over time. We'll be at 300 terabyte drives in a few years. What that allows us to do is to offer the capability for every research company, every engineering company, every financial company, every small medium enterprise to host all of their current disk-based workloads on something that's much more energy efficient, has almost no e-waste, and gives them a great trajectory towards reducing their CO2 footprint. FlashBlade E is using the same subcomponent capabilities, same experience, same software, same joy of moving data around as we just discussed on replication side. But really, it's about building a platform to give you a price point. Today, we're talking 20 cents as a three-year cost, including all the support and before data reduction. So that allows you to plan your programs for the next few years with the understanding and the surety that Pure will reduce that number too. So in summary, new derivation FlashBlade E, slotting in nicely for capacity optimized workloads, particularly for the larger footprints, file and object at a price point 20 cents for a three year cost. Look forward to it. Excellent. I'm going to have to ask the big question, Alex. Uh-oh. When is it available? Because you know, after all of that, the one thing everybody's going to want to know is when can I get it? So today is launch day. It's orderable internally now with our customer base. We expect to start shipments within the next 30 days. Excellent. Well, I, I find this really fascinating. It's really interesting to see how this platform has evolved. And in, in the show notes for this particular episode, what I'll make sure I, I do is point people back to all the history we have, because we've we've talked about the very original FlashBlade launch and that solution. Mm-hmm. We've got podcasts on that. We've got episodes where we look at S and podcast recordings on that too. And I think that might have been you doing that one as well from, from memory. So I'll make sure we point people back to all of these episodes so they can see the history of where things have gone. But for now, Alex, thank you very much for uh, spending the time with me uh, to do this announcement this afternoon and um, catch up with you soon. Thanks, Chris. And apologize to all of your audience for my croaky voice. I'm a little bit under the weather here, but hopefully we got the message across. See you all soon. Take care. You've been listening to Storage Unpacked. For show notes and more, subscribe at storageunpacked.com. Follow us on Twitter at Storage Unpacked or join our LinkedIn group by searching for Storage Unpacked Podcast. You can find us on all good podcatchers, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.